Well, good morning, Foothill. Good to see you all here today. I'm Pastor Chris, one of the pastors here at Foothill Church, and it's good to have you uh, here on a beautiful Sunday morning. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, grab it. Let's go to Hebrews. If you don't, there's one near you on the, on the floor. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 20 to 28 today. If you're new to Foothill Church, we're just marching through the book of Hebrews, just sort of line by line, verse by verse, and, uh, and finding out uh, that what this great book has to say to us. Um, in 2005... Um, the novelist David Foster Wallace, three years before he committed suicide, right, right here in uh, Claremont, um, he was speaking to the graduating class of Kenyon College, and, um, and he shared something with them, and I want to share what he said with you, just a portion of what he said uh, to them. L- look, at, look at what he said. Everybody worships. As far as I know, David Foster Wallace had no faith in Jesus at all. The only choice, is, uh, only choice we get is what to worship, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. Everybody worships. Every person on planet Earth puts their hope in, their trust in something, someone. Everyone looks to find security in something else, someone else. The question is, What is that? Because if it's anything other than God that you live your life for, then that thing, that person, that place where you find security will drive you, will will be the drive shaft, if you will, of your heart. Now, Now, we're in this series on Hebrews, and one of the things I hope that's been made clear, and if not, let me just kind of tell you what's been going on. Ever since chapter 1, here's this writer writing to this beleaguered, suffering group, small group of Christians living in Rome who've come out of Judaism. They now believe on Jesus, and they're they're, they're going through some intense time of persecution, and they feel like they want to punt. They want to run back. They want to give up on this and go back to what feels familiar and go back to that place of security that they felt before. And so often, where that security is found is in other people. So so what the writer of Hebrews does from basically the opening is starts to knock out from under them all of the places where they might feel tempted to put their hope in, all of the persons they might be tempted to put their hope in. He starts with angels. I mean, these super spiritual persons, we might say, that uh, these, these supernatural beings says, don't put your hope there. This is why they're not better than Jesus. He talks about Moses, don't put your hope there. He talks about Abraham, don't put your hope there. Don't put your hope in Melchizedek. Don't put your hope in the Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical priest. Don't do that because they're all people. 
And you're so tempted to latch on to a physical human being and say, I find my security in this person. I find that if they, if this prop ever came out from under me, I'm not sure what would happen to my life. This happens all the time. Like all the time, there are people who go, you know what, um, I I don't go to church anymore because a pastor failed me. I don't serve Christ anymore because, because there, there, there was a guy, a gal, a spiritual mentor in my life that, that, uh, that, that failed, that faltered. And, and boy, if it doesn't work for them, it doesn't work for me. And so we, we anchor our hope, we find our security in some other person, and he's telling us over and over and over, you're never, ever going to find, who, find it in anybody other than Jesus. You do it in anything less than Jesus, you're going to be disappointed. So that's all he's been doing since chapter one, just, just showing us Jesus is greater, he's greater, he's better, he's more superior, and that's why we call this series Greater. I mean, it's all about Jesus being greater than anything, anyone. Why would you put your hope in anything less than Jesus? So, so what props you up? Who? Like, can you think of anybody in your life, any, any person that you'd say, you know what, if, if they failed, my faith would falter. Like this is where, this is where if I'm being honest, I find great security here. And what he's gonna say and what you need to see from today is there, there's no person, no parent, no pastor, no pope, no priest, no mentor, no child, no one that's worth following and worth finding your security in than Jesus. Because listen, you are only as secure as the object of your hope. So the question is, What's the object of your hope? Because he wants to point you inextricably. He wants to point you and say, it's Jesus. So here's what he does today. He, he basically just says, what I, want, what I want to show you is how Jesus is better than these human guys, these guys called the priests. I, I want you to see how they don't even compare. There is, there is like, like they live in different universes in terms of their comparison. Jesus is so much more superior than any other person on planet earth that you're tempted to come to to find a security in. The, the, any other person that you say, this is my go-between, like this is the person that gives me access to God. This is where when I'm with this person, then I feel like I'm with Jesus. So that, that's fine. As long as you're not trying to access Jesus or access God through them. Who, who is that person? Because he wants to knock anybody out from under you to show you, not to be mean to them, not to hurt you, but to show you there's only one that will last and his name is Jesus. So what he does here in verses 20 through 28, we're just gonna find out four things that he does. Four things, four ways, let's say it this way, that Christ is superior. Christ's high priesthood is superior to the priesthood, any other priest, any other go-between that you think you should rely upon He's going to say Christ is far, far better. But he's not just going to leave us there. He's then going to tell us why that's even important. Why do you need to know that Christ is far superior to the Old Testament priesthood? But why, why, why is that important? Well, he's going to tell you that, okay? So let's just start walking through and, and see what he has to say. And the first thing I want you to see, the first comparison he makes, is that Christ's priesthood came with a divine oath. So start reading in verse 20. And he says, and it was not without an oath. What's it? It is 
come, becoming a priest was not without an oath for, for Jesus. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Skip down to verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later in the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So he says, look, all the other priests just came to power because they had the right lineage, they were Levites, all these things, and the law said they could do that. Not Jesus. He's the only priest who has been given an oath that God himself swore. It's I swear to you, and I will not change my mind, he will be a priest forever. Now, that's pretty remarkable if you step back and think about it, because if God says something, you can count on it. He's God, right? God doesn't lie. God doesn't toy with you. God doesn't, no, just kidding. He never does that. He goes, I say this is going to happen. But we tend to look at that and go, well, you know, God's word isn't enough. And you think that would just enrage God and go, what? My word's not enough. Instead, it, it caused him to go, you know what? I want to actually help you. So I'm going to back up my word. I will do something and I will back it up with an oath. I will then promise. I do this. I'm going to do this. And now I, I promise I'll do it. Now, why, why would God do that? Go back. We looked at this before, but go back to chapter 6, verse 17. And look what it says. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. What, what, why? He, he desired. He, he wanted you to have this anchor. He wanted you to know that, that I'm promising you that this guy, he will be, this man, this, this Jesus, Jesus Christ will be a priest forever. And I swear it to you. God has never done that with any other person on planet earth there is no other person that you look to to find security that you can say did that that god did that for but there's something else he says he says only christ's priesthood is permanent okay so so what i want you to see here is look how many times he just says the word forever or permanent right he says it in verse 21 the lord has sworn he will not change his mind you are a priest forever go down to verse 23 the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Down again in verse 28, at the end of that verse, he says he does it forever. We've seen this over and over again. This is not true of any other priest, any other person, pope, pastor, parent, whatever, in your life. You can't say that for, for anybody. They're all frail. They're all human. They all die. That's his point in verse 23. He says, these guys, these guys, you know, they, 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 there were many. There were all these many in number. Josephus was a, uh, was a first century historian. He was a Jew who probably was kind of a turncoat who didn't want to die, so he kind of went over to the Roman side, but he was this great historian. I mean, he wrote prolifically about life uh, in, uh, for Jews in, in the first century. And at one point, he actually, in one of his writings, tells us that according to his estimation, looking at all of his records, he, he estimates that between the time of Aaron, who started the Old Testament priesthood, to the time when the temple in Jerusalem was sacked by Titus in 70, 70 AD, 
that he estimates there was 83 different priests. 83. 83 times these, these people, the people of God, had to wonder, had to feel insecure. Will this next priest be faithful? Will this next priest be loving? Will this next priest be able to go before God? Will there be some disqualifying sin? 83 times. They had to go through. Imagine the insecurity. I'm banking my hope on that person being in the presence of God, that person being able to take care of this sin problem that I have and going to make sacrifices, and I have to see that thing shut down every 30 or so years so a new high priest can be appointed and come along. Eighty-three times. I came to Foothill Church in 2008, and I can only imagine um, there's, there's a few people that are still left. Uh, I look around the room and I see some of your faces from uh, 2008 or 2006, I'm sorry, when I got here. And, and, and there, it's a weird process, right? It's a weird process. Like you're going you're gonna to elect a pastor that you don't even know and you're just hoping. There's hoping against hope. Like, will this guy love us? Will he drive this into the ground? Will he kill this church? What will happen? And they went through it 83 times. They went through it every 20, 30 years. A new pa- well, this happens to us, doesn't it? See, because we die. Something moves us on. We're not permanent. This, this spiritual leader, whoever that might be that you look to. See, Foothill Church, listen to me. I, I, I got here in 2006. I've told you before. I, I actually pray and hope that, that uh, uh, this is, uh, I never go anywhere else. I want to die here. Not because you kill me, but because I just die here, okay? <laughs> I, I, want this to be, I want this to be where I minister until the day God calls me home. And I promise, I vow to you before God that, that by God's grace, I will walk in purity, sexually, financially, with integrity before you until the day I die or God gets me out of here. But here's the point I'm making. I'm going to leave here someday, right? Spiritual leaders don't last. They ultimately get taken from you in one way or another, disqualified, death, disease, dementia, something takes you, takes them away from you. And so what do you do? You don't go, hey, I feel more secure when they're around. I'm sure glad Billy Graham is still living. I sure put my hope in the Pope or whatever. You look and you say, no, there's one high priest and it's Jesus Christ and he'll never go away and he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us and he'll never die and I can hope in him for eternity. See, this is why he's, he's a better high priest. But then he says something else. He says only Christ is sinless. Look at, look at verse 26. So skip verse 25. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, the other ones, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Christ, in other words, he's sinless. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices in, uh, for, for, for his own sins. See, no other, no other person, no other go-between for you, no other person that you find security in can say that. You've never met a sinless person. 
And anybody who says, John will tell us in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you are worse than an unbeliever. You lie to yourself and the truth of God is not in you. You, you have sin, right? All of us have sin. Christ is the only sinless one. So he's saying, put your hope in a sinless one, not a sinful human being. Put your hope in the one who didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins every single day because he sinned every single day. Put your, put your hope in the one who never had to offer sacrifice for his sin. Instead, he offered himself. See, there, there's a big difference between um, following or imitating somebody and putting your hope and finding your security in that somebody. And Paul, Paul's a great example of this. Paul, Paul in Acts chapter 14, I believe he's in the city of Lystra, and, and um, he and Barnabas are going together at this point, and they are they're performing uh, signs and wonders in front of people. And so, you know, here there are these pagan Greeks, and they see Paul, and they see Barnabas, and they start to believe Barnabas must be Zeus, Paul must be Hermes, and so they start to worship them. And Paul and Barnabas rush down there and say, no, no, no. I mean, they rip their clothes, which is a Jewish way of saying, woe is me. Do not do this to me. This is horrible. Stop right now. And they say, stop. We are men just like you. Do not put your hope. Do not put your security in me. But Paul will say over and over and over again, and he's, as he writes letters to the churches, he'll say, imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. My brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says it over and over again. See, that's a good thing. We should be exemplary. Like, do you live a life you say, people can actually follow me. People, I can say to people, follow my example. I may not even have to say it, but I'm living the kind of life they say, if they, if they follow me, they will be following Christ. That's not just for pastors. That's not just for big spiritual giants. That's for every single person in this room who calls themselves a Christian. Do you live that way? Everybody ought to be living an exemplary life. But, but that's different than somebody putting their hope in you and finding their security in you. See, Paul says, don't, don't let that happen. Because, why? Because none of us are sinless. Because there isn't one person who's qualified to offer themselves for your sins. Everyone is disqualified because of their own sin. So Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at this. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12. Each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The obvious answer to all those questions is no, no, no. So don't don't put your hope in me. Don't find your security in me. Only Christ is sinless. Only Christ died for your sin. Put your trust, put your hope in him. That's the idea. But then the last thing I want you to see in this comparison is that only Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. So look at, look at verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, First for his own sin, then for those of the, of, of, the, of, of the people. Since, because, the reason why, 
He did this once for all when he offered up himself. Christ is the once for all sacrifice. It never needs to be repeated again. This is an unrepeatable event. It'll never happen again. Now think of all the ways that we as human beings try to add to Christ's sacrifice or have this feeling in our hearts that tell us that if I don't do something, if I don't, you know, uh, go on some trip to, you know, sacrifice myself or if I don't give a certain amount or if I don't, um, I don't have a lot of good works, then somehow Christ isn't going to love me. God isn't going to love me. So what I do is I offer to God sacrifices and they're never good enough because they never cleanse your conscience. They never get you to a place where you feel like I'm actually clean before God. So you have to do them over and over and over again. And not only is that sad, it's wicked. It's wicked because you're saying in that offering, you're saying, and I, I think the way I gain access to God is I have to add to the sacrifice for Christ. And, 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 and the Bible is telling you, God is telling you, you can never add to it. You must not add to it. His sacrifice was so glorious, was so magnificent. It is once for all. I will accept this, God says, as the final, complete, full sacrifice. Not one more bull has to be offered not one more lamb, not one more anything to gain access to me. That's why the veil rips in two and people now can walk into the presence of God. We can come boldly before the throne because the once for all sacrifice has been made for us. Now, now he's going to tell us, why should you care? (laughs) Why is this such a big deal that Christ is better than anybody you're tempted to put your hope in, to find security in, to to, to gain sort of spiritual access to God. Why is that so massive to him that he spent all this time telling us these things? Well, go back to verse 25. Look what he says. I skipped this because this is really the apex of his argument. So look at this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you hear this? What no other person on planet earth can do for you. No pope, no priest, no pastor, no parent, not Billy Graham, not not the greatest spiritual giant, not your mentor. No one can do for you. Christ can. You can't say, verse 25, about anybody but Jesus. You know what he just told you in verse 25? He told you three things. He told you what Christ does, how he does it, and who he does it for. So, so, so let's look at those together. What, what does Christ do? Christ, Christ saves to the uttermost. That's what he's saying, right? He saves to the uttermost. That, that word, he, he, look at how he says it. He says he is able, consequently, he is able. That, that word able is uh, the, the, the Greek word dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it. Uh, that doesn't mean God blows things apart. No, it means in God's ableness, in his ability is 
power. This is not just, you know, I'm kind of sort of able to do some things. No, I've got power behind my ability. I can make this happen. And what does he say? He, he can make your salvation complete, total. He can save you to the uttermost. It is all-encompassing. There is nothing that his salvation does not cover. There is no sin that's too deep for Christ to cover. That's the idea. This is such good news. So, so, so when you start thinking, my sin, my sin's just too deep. Chris, you don't understand. I, I don't think God understands how pervasive my sin is. He's able to save the uttermost. Well, my, my sin is too long or wide, if you will, and, 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 and so I'm, I, I feel like I understand God saved me and forgave me the first time I sinned. He, uh, okay, maybe he, see, he forgave me the second time and possibly even the third time, but I'm on like number 10,000. You don't understand. There has got to be a limit to the grace of God, to the patience of God. Surely I have worn out all the things that God can do for me because I just keep going back to the same cesspool. Does God want you to keep going back? Of course he doesn't. But is he able to save you to the uttermost? Beyond that, yes. Or maybe you look and you go, Chris, I have a, I have a spectacular sin in my past. I am so ashamed of and it's so egregious. And in my mind, I don't know anybody who has sinned like me. Can you relate to that? Like, do, 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 you, do you look at your life and do you, do you tend to have things come back in your mind? I do. Like how many of you in here would say, there's a sin or sins in my past that I'm not proud of, I'm very, very ashamed of. I would say that. Would you say that? Come on, raise your hand if that's you. Now look around. Welcome home. Right? That's us. What's, what's the writer of Hebrews saying? He's able to save the uttermost. All those sins that you just raised your hand over and said, I, I hate this. I hate that that's in my past. It's covered. He says, I'll, I'll save you from that. So when you begin to feel that there are limits to God's grace, he saved the uttermost. When you begin to wonder, how is it possible that an infinitely holy God can save a sinner? Because I see my sin like Paul. I look at my heart and say, from my vantage point, from where I sit in the stands, I have the blackest heart I can see. I can't see your heart, but I can see mine. And you say, you remember, he saves to the uttermost, the blackest of hearts. Isn't that amazing? This is such good news. So Paul says, look at you can't out the grace of God because there is a great high priest who will save you to the uttermost, totally, completely. And by the way, I don't think this is just talking about the degree of salvation. Like he can reach deeper, he can. I think he's saying your salvation is utterly complete. Do you understand that when we talk about salvation, Christian, we are saying that God saves every part of you? It, it is, see, you, you sometimes we'll hear even Christians talk like this, like, like you know, God someday, God's going to sort of, you know, 
pop my soul out of my body. This little ab, ab, this horrible shell goes into earth, rots and decays, and then my, I sort of go into the spiritual disembodied bliss in heaven. That is not Christian. That's pagan. Okay, my, my great hope is not to get to heaven and see my grandpa and my grandma and walk up to them and go, come here, grandma and grandma, and whoa, that was weird. We just passed through each other, right? No, this is the whole point of the resurrection. God saves your mind. He saves your soul. He saves your body. This is, this, in fact, this is one of, the, one of the reasons why we care for our bodies now. They're going to be resurrected. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to see my dad. And I'm going to touch him. I'm going to touch him. I'm going to grab that whiskery face that I remember. I'm going to kiss him. And I'm going to kiss flesh and blood. I'm not going to kiss and blow through a spirit. You understand that? This is our hope. He saves you to the uttermost. But how does he do that? How does Christ save to the uttermost? And the answer is by making intercession for us. You see this? So the logic of this verse is he is able to save to the uttermost. And he ends it with, since he lives to make intercession for us. In other words, this is the reason. Here's the because. Here's why. The reason you are saved, the reason you are kept, the reason you are secure is not because of willpower. It's not because you're an awesome guy or gal. It's not because you read your Bible every day, which is part of it. It's because ultimately Christ is praying for you. Now, this is amazing. This means he lives to make intercession for you forever. He doesn't stop. It's eternal. It has no end. It's happening all the time. It's incessant. Now, we have a hard time. Like, I can't wrap my mind around that. How can God know every sparrow that falls from the sky? How can he know every hair on your head? See, I was reading an article the other day that, that says um, <clears throat> multitasking is a myth. Like we like to talk like that, like, you know, I can, I can be writing an email at the same time I'm driving. And we think of that as multitasking, and now we're finding out it's actually killing people. So um, it's a myth. Try it. You cannot hold a conversation and text at the same time and be having a separate conversation. I'm focusing here. You, you can't, your, your mind can't go in two different places like that, but God's can. It is no stress. It is no strain. You understand this? It is no strain at all for God to know every sparrow that falls. It is no stress at, at, on him at all. There's no, there's no taxing of God to go, I know right now where every single molecule in the universe is. I'm not taxed by that at all. That all just makes perfect sense to me. So when Jesus says he lives to make intercession for you, always, always, he means always. He means that right now in the halls of power, your name is being mentioned. God help her. You see what she's going through. And I pray that today, You'd show up and you'd be real for her and you'd be an anchor for her soul and she'd build her life. I mean, this is, God's praying for you. 
You understand, um, I, I wasn't just saved in, uh, on March 5th, 1979. I am being saved right now. I am being upheld right now. So are you. And how? Through the prayers of Jesus. This is what lets me persevere. This is what allows me, if there's anything, we just sang about it earlier. I mean, this is, grace is everything, right? It's all of grace. It's grace. If I, if I you know, getting to the end is all of grace. Living this life, it's all of grace. This is, this is God's grace flowing to me, giving me the ability. And if I do it, if it gets accomplished in my life, it's because of the grace of God. If I have the impetus, if I have the impulse to do what's right, that's the grace of God. That doesn't come to me just because. That comes to me because Christ is praying for that. That's amazing. Christ always lives to make intercession for you if you're his child. Because who's it for? Look at that last thing. So I kind of skipped over that middle phrase. He says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Who gets in on this? Who gets saved to the uttermost? Who receives the prayers of Christ? Those who draw near to him. Near through him. Who's, who's the one we're coming through? Jesus, right? This is faith. I draw near. This is why we're going to read when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. That very famous verse. If, if, if anyone wants to draw near to God, he must first believe that he exists and that it re he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's faith. This is what allows me to come into God's presence. I draw near through Christ. Christ is the gateway. Christ is the, the, the one-way passage. This is how I get into the presence of Christ, of God, and it's through faith. And, and, and this didn't just happen one time. Like I want to suggest to you, this is the whole of the Christian life. The whole of the Christian life is drawing near to God over and over and over and over again. It's like the Bible talks about God being like the Spirit of God, being like a fountain of life, and we draw near and we are refreshed again and we drink again and we fill up again. We are drawing near, like I talked about last week, through prayer. We're, we're drawing near through fellowship. We're drawing near as we read our Bibles. We're drawing near as we come to church. We're drawing near. We do it all the time. And you know what I think? I think this tells us something about how Jesus prays for us. I think one of the things he's praying for you and for me is God, I pray that once again, Chris would draw near. Draw him near to you. Because the Bible says as we draw near, he draws near to us. Because this is where the fountain is. This is where it will be found. This is where Chris will be sustained. This is how he's going to make it through another day, another week. This is how he's going to preach a sermon. This is how he's going to be effective in anything. He must draw near God. He can't stay away, so get him back in your presence. Draw near to him. Let him drink from the fountain once again. And so we come. He's saying, come, come again, come once, come twice, come a million times and keep drawing near. See, see what happens? Jesus prays like this. And when Jesus prays for you, 
he always gets an answer. God doesn't sort of, I'll take it under advisement. I'll think, I'm not sure that I want to answer this. No, no, no. If Jesus prays it, it happens. I'm going to make this happen. Uh, you're going to be sustained. You're, you're going to draw near. So, so let me show you how this looks. Go, go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And let's just see. Here's an example of God, of Jesus, interceding. What does it look like for Jesus to pray for us? Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus is about to go to the cross. These are like parting words to the faithful. Parting words that say, here's, here's the last thing I've got to say to you. So go down to verse 31 in Luke 22. And he says, Simon, Simon. He's talking to Peter. That's, that's Peter's name right now. Behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now listen to me. Look at me. Satan demanded Simon to have you. Now, now, now you'll hear people saying like, like uh, the devil is attacking me. Probably not for lots of reasons. But the devil is not omnipresent. You understand? He cannot be everywhere. He's not, he's not God's opposite. God has no opposite. God is a unique being to himself. So, so, so the devil has probably much bigger fish to fry than you and me. And one of those fish is the leader of the church. The one who would carry the ball forward. And he says he desires to have you. Simon... The devil is coming after you and he wants to drag you to hell. He wants to take you down. Look what he says. That here's what he wants to do, that he might sift you like wheat. You're going to be attacked and he's going to throw your life into utter chaos. You're going to feel undone by what he does to you. 32. But I have prayed for you. There it is. that your faith may not fail. What happened? Simon Peter goes down, right? They're, they're sitting there and, you know, you're, you're that guy who's with Jesus. No, I wasn't. He denies him. No, no, you were. No, I'm telling you I wasn't. Denies him twice. No, I'm sure you're the man. Blankety, blank, blank, I'm not the man. I do not know him. And the rooster crows and he goes, and I have no doubt that like Judas, he probably went out and said, I just denied the Son of God. Maybe I should just take my life and be done with this. But I've prayed for you. Did Peter fail? Did he falter? Yeah. But did his, was his faith undone? No. And then he says this, and when you have turned again. When? Not if. When? You're going to turn, Peter. Why? Because I prayed for you. I prayed for you. And this is a guarantee that if I pray for you, this is going to happen. So, Peter, when, when you turn, turn where? Turn back and draw near to God again. Right? Because this is what happens. We sin. We sin spectacularly. And what does sin like that most often do to us? makes us very, very ashamed. And what do we want to do when we're ashamed? Hide our face and go, God, this is too big. Run from Jesus. Run from God. But if we truly understand the gospel, which I think the light must have gone on with Peter, 
and he turned and he went back. And he says, you turn and you draw near to the presence of God. This is what Jesus is doing for you. I mean, just say your name. Satan, something has desired to come against you. Your life may be sifted. He's going to hurt you. Circumstances are going to come your way. There's going to be awful things. You're going to get kicked in the teeth. There's going to be rough patches. There might even be demonic oppression and certainly supernatural spiritual warfare that comes to your front door. But if you are a child of God, then hear the words of Christ. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's what he's praying. Oh God, I pray. Don't let Chris's faith fail. I see what he's going to go through. Don't let let Stephen's faith fail. Don't let Otticelli's faith fail. Don't let James, don't don't let any of their faith fail. I'm praying for them. This is what Christ is doing for you right now. So the Bible says you have an advocate before God. You have somebody who stands there praying for you all the time. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he will save you to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Is that a reality to you? Have you drawn near like that? See, see, if you haven't, you can. You'd say, Chris, I don't know Jesus like this. I don't don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't don't have that relationship with God. I want to know that I am saved to the uttermost. I want to know that Christ is praying for me always. Imagine that. How would you feel to know that the greatest spiritual authority in your life, the person you look up to spiritually more than any person, is constantly praying for you? How how wonderful is it for you to know when somebody comes and says, man, I prayed for you today. You're like, wow. Well, Jesus is saying that to you right now. I'm praying for you today, right now. Amazing. Do you know that? The way that happens is you draw near to God for the first time and you draw near to him through faith in Jesus Christ and you go to him and say, Jesus, Jesus, I trust in what you've done for me. I see that I cannot save myself and I turn from my 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 desire, my life plan to try and save myself through all my good works and I run to you and he'll save you. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but you gotta call. That's all you gotta do because everything else is done. Jesus, save me. And when you draw near to God like that, you turn around and God's right there. That's all. This is like Jonah. Jonah runs from God as far as he can go, the opposite direction. And you might think, well, when Jonah's done, he's got to go back and find God. Nope. All he's got to do is turn around, and God's right in his face. That's you. Maybe you've been running from God for a long time. And you turn, and you draw near, and he will draw near to you. That's his promise.